0: Let's pray. Sorry about that. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you here in your word, we come knowing that this is a living word through which you speak. It is a living word through which you make yourself present. It is a living word through which you affect change. And so we ask You this morning, O God, to speak to us. And through the riches of the glory of Your Word, that You would grant us to be strengthened with power through Your Spirit, and that Christ may dwell richly within our hearts through faith. And that being rooted and grounded in Your love, that we may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ, which surpasses all knowledge and understanding and fills us with the fullness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me start by saying hello. Greetings from Church Creek Presbyterian. It's exciting for me to uh, finally get the opportunity to come and to visit with y'all. One of the bad things about uh, having a call to one specific church is you are called to that specific church and. You don't always get to go out and see uh, and visit the other churches in the area. So it's real exciting for me and for my family uh, for us to get to be here with you today. In thinking about uh, being here, the question that kept running through my mind that you guys may be thinking is what does God have to say to his people who find themselves in the midst of leadership change? What does God have to say to His people who find themselves without a permanent location for them to call their own? What does God have to say to His people that because of these challenges may become tempted... To be impatient or afraid or to see the challenges as being bigger than they actually are. What does God have to say to his people who may be uncertain and unsure about the future? Well, surely by now you've guessed. Obviously, I'm talking about the Israelites as they found themselves living in this unique period of time in their history where they were a people who had just been formed into a nation. They had been brought out of bondage and slavery to Egypt, and they had the promise before them that God was going to take them to this promised land. They had the people of God living in this unique period of their redemption having been in a sense accomplished. They're out of Egypt. And yet, they're still waiting for the full consummation or the full benefits of that redemption to be manifest as they are not yet in Canaan. What was God's Word to His people that found themselves in an uncertain time living in a precarious situation where they did not have a permanent residence to call their home in the midst of a leadership change where the one leader that they had always known was no longer with them. Now, maybe God has spoken this message not only to that group, But it's a wonderful message, and the message that he speaks to his people is a message that begins in Genesis chapter 1. Now how many of you, as we started reading from Genesis chapter 1, how many of you thought, oh, okay, well, a sermon about creation, show of hands. How many of you got really nervous about, oh my goodness, which view is he going to start promoting here? Show of hands. All right, some of you are honest. Genesis 1, the context, the original context of Genesis 1, has nothing to do with the science of creation, has nothing to do with trying to hammer out how long were these days. It has It has no interest in trying to hammer out a polemic of creation science versus evolution. And yet, how many of you, as the text was being read, as you were following along there with your sheet, how many of you started having those ideas and thoughts coming into your mind? Creation, length of days, so on and so forth. How many of you, that's that's where your mind went to? The reason that happens is because we, as the people of God, live in a particular time in history. We live in a very specific cultural setting. And as much as we want to say that we are not products of our environment or the world. We're products of the Word of God. As much as we want to say that, and I think we can say that in many areas, we also have to recognize that we are formed and shaped and influenced by our cultural settings. And in our particular cultural setting, science, creation, length of days, these are the things that polemically start running through our minds as we read this text, but for the people of God who were living in that period of transition where Moses was gone, where they had been brought out of Egypt, and as they were heading into the promised land of Canaan, for this people, as they would read these words, the words that would have stuck out to them are the words formless and void. In the Hebrew, what we call the tohu wavohu. It's really fun to say uh, impress people with that later on. Or just chuckle and say it five times in a row really, really fast and see if you can keep up with it. But it, these are words that would have immediately jumped out to the people of God. One of the other words that would have immediately jumped out to the people of God is the word Waters. Did you know how many times the word waters appears in Genesis chapter 1? It happens over and over and over. In most translations, it happens 11 times. Now, I didn't do the math, but it may actually appear more than the word day. A little food for thought. The people of God would have read these words. They would have heard these words as the words were being read to them and immediately what would have grabbed their attention is formless and void. The concept of wilderness. Where were they living? In the wilderness. The word for tohu wavohu in the Hebrew would have sound very familiar To a word that they would have known, um, a word called Tiamat. Anybody know what Tiamat was? Tiamat was one of the Mesopotamian gods that ruled, that, that was part of the ruling class of gods over the Canaanite peoples that the people of God were about to go and confront. They would have seen the description here of creation in this original state of being formless and being void, being covered by the waters, and yet the waters being divided, separated, used to create other things. They would have read this and they would have understood that the polemic of Genesis chapter 1 is not science. It's who is the most powerful God. What do the people of God need when they find themselves in times of transition? What do they need when they find themselves in times of uncertainty? When the reality of being a pilgrim people is much more present to you? What do you need? Well, what God understood that we need is that we need to be reminded that He is the one true God and there is absolutely nothing that can stand in the way of His purposes for His people. In Genesis 1, God provides us this very commanding portrait of Himself. And so what I want to do here this morning is not work through the text in terms of verse by verse by verse, because this text really isn't designed to be done that way. This text is a word picture. This text is an unfolding story. It's a narrative where God wants us to see who the chief actor is. almost said protagonist. Who is the chief actor? Who is the one that is doing things? Who is the one that is accomplishing things? And how is it that he is getting these things done? How is he being successful? How is he going about this business? If you are the people of God and you have just been rescued out of Egypt where you as a people found yourselves in the wilderness stuck by a body of water with the armies of Pharaoh coming after you. How was salvation accomplished there? Do you remember? We are told that God caused a wind to blow across the waters. And the result of which is that the waters separated themselves and out of those waters formed dry ground. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that exactly what is happening here in the account of creation? God is shown as being present in His creation as the Spirit is hovering over the waters. And in the Hebrew, the word for Spirit and the word for wind is the exact same word. There is a sense in which the picture being drawn is is that in this dark, uh, watery mess, this dark, watery wilderness, a place where there is no life yet other than the life of God that has broken into creation as His Spirit is there, and as His words are there, as light has penetrated this darkness. Where did that light come from? It didn't come from the sun. The sun hadn't been created yet. This is the light of God's presence breaking into the darkness. The reality and presence of God's Word breaking forth and thundering over the waters. The Spirit of God hovering over these waters, and in a place that is dark and a wilderness, he starts to go about the process of exercising his power and his authority, and he's moving and changing and developing that original creation state to make it exactly what he wants it to be. And what does he want it to be? He wants it to be day seven. He wants it to be a day in which, do you notice in chapter 2, 1 through 3, it is the, first, is the only day that does not mention darkness. There is no darkness described on that day. That day of rest, which is really a, not a great way of describing what's happening. It's a day of worship. It's a day of celebration. God Himself is reflecting on what He has accomplished and He is in it, worshiping Himself as He describes the goodness and, and what He has accomplished and as He is inviting the angels and as He is inviting Adam and Eve to participate with Him in sitting around, basking in the goodness of His glory and enjoying what He has done. The Beginning of day one, total darkness. Day seven, total light. In between those two points, we have day after day after day that is described as moving from darkness to light. Darkness to light. Darkness to light. And what is the result? The watery, chaotic wilderness that is not a place that life can exist starts changing, starts being reformed, starts being recreated and becomes, by day seven, this beautiful garden temple where God is dwelling with His people and when they are, where they are together enjoying who He is, what He has done, and their place with Him. In the process of getting there, we can look at Genesis 1 and say, well, you know, okay, God is scientifically working some things out. But if you're the people of God living at this period of time, what you are aware of is that the Spirit of God blew over the waters, created dry land for you as a people to walk out of Egypt and to to be saved from Pharaoh. And to be saved from whom? Not just Pharaoh, but who else? All the gods of Egypt. This is not a secular time period. This is not a time period where people have any idea of existence apart from a supernatural existence where there are gods and they understand that the gods are actively participating and that they believe that their successes and their failures are tied to the successes and the failures of their gods. God has made a... Yahweh has made a huge statement for His people. I am stronger than the Egyptian gods, I am stronger than Pharaoh simply by causing wind to blow. But the people of God also find themselves before another body of water, don't they? In Joshua 3, we find that they are encamped before the Jordan. And for them to cross over and to finally enter into the land of Canaan, they have to cross these waters. And what happens? This time, it's not a wind that blows throughout the night in order to reveal dry ground. This time, what God tells His people to do is this. Take the Ark of the Covenant, which was what? God's throne, and walk up to the waters, and as soon as the soles of your feet, got to watch that blue line, So As soon as the soles of your feet hit the water, what's going to happen? The waters will divide. Dry land will appear. And you will walk safely into Canaan ready to conquer. To receive what is yours. As God, who is pictured on His throne, goes before His people representing His presence and His power and his rule to once again accomplish all of his promises. In the ancient Near East at this time, the way people perceived of life was not just that there were gods. Their perception was that the gods were tied to specific geographical regions. This is why, by the way, you have the Egyptian gods, you have the Mesopotamian gods, you have the Canaanite gods, you have the Babylonian gods, you have the Sumerian gods, right? And there's a reason that there does seem to be some overlap between all those different gods. You had to have all these different gods because the gods themselves were tied to geographic regions. Now, if you're the people of God and you are living in Egypt and you are being called to leave that, and not only to leave that, but then to travel through a whole bunch of wilderness, and then when you get to the other end of the wilderness to cross water and to go into a land that at the time seems to belong to this other, these other groups of people who have their gods. Do you think that was intimidating? Well, we know the answer, right? What happened to that first generation as they were faced with that? They sent the spies in. The spies came back and said what? No way. That place is full of a bunch of Shaquille O'Neal's and we don't want anything to do with that place. We are too small. We are too vulnerable. We are too fragile. And they don't go. So we know that the temptation is real. And we know that it's not only the temptation that's real, but the cause of the temptation is real. In and of themselves, they do not have the ability to accomplish what God is saying. He has to do it. But rather than Him simply telling them, hey, I'll do it. Just take me at my word. He creates this word picture where you see God playing the role that Baal played in the creation story of the Canaanite peoples. In the creation story of the Canaanite peoples, the way that they understood creation had developed was that there was war between these gods. And that Baal uh, showed himself to be the more powerful god. uh, And he showed himself to be the more powerful god over this sea lizard serpent god. And, And as such, in the creation story for the Canaanite people, Baal was the chief of the gods because he had won the victory. He was the thunder god. He was the storm king. He was the God who ruled over the waters. Who is ruling over the waters in Genesis 1? The people have been delivered through water. They're faced with water again. They're going into a land where the culture believes that their chief God is the God who rules over the waters. What do the people of God need to be assured of? that Yahweh is not tied to a geographical region. And no matter what region He goes into, He is always the one true God. And there is nothing, nothing, that can stand in the way of Him accomplishing His, pur- his purposes even when His people are scared, tired, uncertain, unsure, and are, are treading very lightly, right? Even that cannot stand in the way of God's purposes for His people. So as we come to this, this, this giant word picture that God's creating and this unfolding drama that is occurring here in Genesis 1, God is providing this commanding portrait of Himself where He wants His people to understand His presence and His power and that it is unlimited, it is uncontrollable, and it is unstoppable. There is nowhere you can go that God is not already there. There is nothing you will face that He can't overcome. How does He do that here in Genesis 1 though? Does He break forth into this creation and wrestle some sea creature, some sea serpent? Does he come forth arrayed in this powerful armor in which he's got swords and shields and, he, and he's going through and just, you know, cleaning house? How does he win the victory over the watery wilderness? And how does he separate the waters and make the waters do what he wants in order to create dry land and from that dry land that what ends up happening is vegetation grows and the provisions of life become real and as God himself even not just conquers the waters but then fills the waters with what he wants to live there how does he get it done it is not through warfare it is not through a fight He does what? He speaks. He wants it done, so He speaks it into existence. And over and over and over again, let there be and there was. Let there be and there was. Let there be and there was. God is present in His creation And His power is manifest not only in His being there and Him physically doing something, but in speaking. Taking what He wants and speaking it into existence. There is nothing that can stand in the way of God's purposes. Because all He has to do is want something, and then speak it. What does he want for two rivers? By the way, it's one of the reasons I picked the whole water imagery, you know, two rivers, sorry, if if that wasn't obvious at this point. What does he want for two rivers? As you find yourselves in the midst of a transition in leadership, As you find yourselves in a position in which you do not have a permanent residence that you call a church home. As you find yourselves probably wrestling with some uncertainty about the future. As you find yourselves, and as you will find yourselves, tempted by the challenges that are certainly before you. What does God want for you in the midst of all of that of what is going on for you right now? What He wants you to remember is that His presence and His power have broken into creation and He has given His Spirit and His Word by which He accomplishes what He wants for you. And what He wants for you as His church is to be tied not only to the God who in these images breaks into creation back at the very beginning, not just the words that are spoken in that original creation time, and not just the Spirit that is hovering over waters. What He wants you to to understand is that the church, as as the church of Jesus Christ, you are indwelled by the God who has been made flesh and who has walked among us. The God who is the Word that has come into history, the God who is the Word who took on flesh that was filled by the Holy Spirit. In which He accomplished everything that was necessary for the people of God not to have some mere earthly existence of of some earthly permanence, of some kind of earthly um, power or prestige, but something that is eternal. Something that is unstoppable. Unstoppable. As Jesus Christ, filled by the Spirit, the writer uh, uh, Mark tells us in the Gospel of Mark, does what? He gets filled by the Spirit at the baptismal waters, and then what does Jesus do? He goes into the wilderness. And the way the writer of Mark describes the work of Jesus, Jesus never comes out of the wilderness until the end of the Gospel when He comes out of what? The darkness of a cave, of a tomb, where the light of the new creation once again broke forth into creation because Jesus was raised from the dead. That ultimate place of wilderness, darkness, and death where Jesus Christ who is our King, has overcome not just earthly challenges, but He has overcome His Father's need for justice. By the way, how many times is Jesus described as demonstrating who He is around water? What does it mean For Jesus to come to His disciples who find themselves scared because they think they're going to drown because they're in the darkness of night and the watery chaos is blowing around them and they think they're going to perish. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't speak to them from the shore. He enters. And how does He enter? With the soul's of His feet demonstrating the royal power of His presence by walking on the water. Just as God's royal presence comes into the land of Canaan as the soles of their feet hit the water and the water separates so that they can cross safely, Jesus, with every step of the sole of His feet, Demonstrates who he is, comes to his people, and he calms the seas. As you will get scared at times, not just individually, but in this process of transition, remember that Jesus comes to you in those moments. But more than that, remember this. There is nowhere that you can end up going where he has not already demonstrated the superiority of his power and his presence for his people. Too many times what we do is we know these big stories of the scripture and what we ask ourselves is the wrong question. And what's the wrong question? The wrong question is how does this apply to me? or how does this apply to our situation beloved what god is wanting you to do is to see these big stories and then ask yourselves where do we fit into this we don't want to take the grand eloquent and and shrink it down into the minutia of our small existence We want to take our small existence in the minutiae of the details of our lives and see them as they fit into the expanse of this grand, eloquent design that God has for His people. That He has secured for you in coming into history, in taking on flesh, in working miracles, in going into the deepest darkest wilderness that exists which is death and coming out the other side victorious as the light who has come into the world as the word of God by which all of God's purposes and plans are accomplished where all of God's promises are made yes and amen in him. This Christ dwells within this church. This Christ dwells within you as a believer. And so my encouragement is see yourselves in a fresh way today. Not only in Christ, but in the conquering Christ. In the Christ who shares His rule with you as His people, as you are the manifestation of the Word of God here in this community. As you are the manifestation of of the light of God to this community. As you are the manifestation of the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death in this community, God empowers you to carry out this purpose. And there is nothing that can stand in your way. Where do you fit into this story of Genesis 1? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we cannot begin to express our gratitude to You for not only the amazing things that You desire for us and not only the amazing things that You accomplish for us, but in the amazing way that You communicate these things to us so that we are not left to the weakness of our flesh to simply try to hold on to ideas but that You give us a grand story in which we see ourselves participating. That You give us this, this, these word pictures by which we understand You in a powerful way so that we will do as we have sung throughout this service, and that is to follow You by faith and not by sight. Lord, convince us that You have overcome everything that stands in Your way and before us. And convince this people that Your purposes for them will work themselves out as they will but follow You by Word and Spirit and wait for You to reveal Yourself. And so, Lord, bless Your people.